Welcome, everyone, to episode 253 of Some Like It, Scott. I'm your host, Scott Shelton, and this week we're talking about this year's Palm Door winning French courtroom drama, Anatomy of a Fall. Here for the discussion, I have my co-host, Scott Harvey. Scott, you had a little taste of out-of-state business travel this past week. How was that? How are you doing? Yeah, not something I get to do too often just because I work for a small firm. You know, it's not they're not throwing out the big bucks for us to travel very often. But I have gotten to do this two years in a row now to go to an immigration law conference, um, part of the continuing education that we have to do as attorneys. Um, But last year went to Clearwater, Florida. I don't I probably talked about it on the podcast. Yeah, I mean, I remember. I don't think our yeah. listeners will, but I do. <laughs> for, for the people who are deep in on the, the yeah, lore. The, the Scott um, lore, yeah. But yeah, so this year it went to Austin, Texas, which was pretty cool. I've never been there. I had not spent much time in Texas except for when we went to Houston a few years ago, Scott, together. Um, so it was it was cool to be there. Didn't, you know, was barely there for two days, so I didn't experience too much. But, you know, it was better than staying in the office. We got to eat some good food um, and, you know, stay in a pretty nice hotel. So um, all of that was was pretty exciting. Also on the plane ride there to bring it back to movies for a moment. Um, I did watch a 2023 film. I watched a Blackberry. Finally, Scott, I caught up with that one. And I think you saw that one when it came out in theaters. I did. Um, yep. Here in New York. Yeah. Enjoyed it. Very interesting story. Did not know a whole lot about it, um, but definitely in the vein of a social network, big short, um, you know, biopic of sort of in the world of finance and technology um, that takes a little bit more of a satirical yeah. edge, if you will. Very, I guess. very social networky. Yeah. Um, um, sure. Like even you know, again, even some of the just the the way that the story plays out is pretty simple. Like you know, you have like this wealthy figure the Sean Parker like figure in um in Blackberry is this character that Glenn Howerton uh plays. But he, you know, he gets involved originally, like gives them a lot of money to sort of get this thing off the ground. But then he has his own interests at heart, which is kind of also the story of what happens with Sean Parker and in uh the social art. But anyway, um it was I th- I thought it was a really interesting biopic. Again, uh, not not on the level of something like Social Network. That's a pretty much a possible bar. But Jay Baruchel, I thought was really excellent in the movie. Uh, he plays uh, sort of the guy who's who who the Blackberry is his brainchild, um, and also the director of the movie. Uh, his name's escaping right now. Is it like Nick Johnson or something like that? Or I don't know if I just dreamed that up. But he plays. The best friend character. He plays like I guess the Eduardo Saverin character. I was gonna say, yeah, the Andrew Garfield yeah. comp. Yeah. Um and I thought he was good too. I thought that was kind of a tragic character. Uh, Glenn Howerton, you know, got a lot of praise for it. And I do think he's good, but he is shouting for a lot of the movie. Um yeah. and it never I, that, really that was my reaction to the movie. People were like, yeah. Oh my gosh, is this like a dark horse supporting actor? I'm like, No. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, like I don't Not, know what he wouldn't. He wouldn't be in my book, but he's certainly entertaining to watch in the movie. Uh, sure. I mean, he has the big scenes where, you know, it's played for laughs. How crazy this like over the top this guy. Yeah. Is. Yeah. But anyway, uh, Blackberry, I, I definitely recommend it. I'm glad I caught up with it. It was it was a fun movie and, you know, uh, a prescient movie to watch also in 2023, I think, with where we're at. Sure. Yeah, no doubt. I caught up on a 2023 short film when I saw the wonderful story of Henry Sugar at the Paris Theater 
yesterday, along with a number of other Wes Anderson short films over the years. None of the other ones that are part of like the Roald Dahl mini mm-hmm. group, I, but I saw like all of his pretty famous like shorts and then a commercial, an Amex commercial he shot uh, in the theater yesterday, which was a cool experience. Wes was not there, but he did record an introduction to like the package of short films which was just frankly bizarre and so like someone called him 30 seconds before to do it and he like put it together for 45 seconds and then shipped it out which feels you know a little half-assed but that's okay we'll, we'll let him off the hook the man's busy cranking out two movies a year right now so can't expect him to have time to shoot uh an intro video on her, on his phone so i saw that earlier in the day on uh yesterday on saturday and then this evening in the evening yesterday i uh, saw Anatomy of a Fall for a second time. You know, I, I saw I had the chance to see it at the New York Film Festival. I believe I even talked about seeing it yeah. on the podcast. There's a few movies I didn't talk about that I saw at the fall festival, but I believe Anatomy of a Fall was one that I did talk about. And I was going back and forth about whether I wanted to schedule the time to go and see it again, because it is a two and a half hour plus movie. So it's fairly long. And I had a lot of like random plans or random things I wanted to do this weekend. And I was trying to figure out the right way to work it all together. But I ultimately did decide to go see it at Alamo because it's not showing anymore at AMC's. It was showing at AMC's a few weeks ago, but it's no longer showing at AMC's here in New York City. And I was happy that I did. I, I don't regret that decision and happy to discuss further, which I guess we can just go ahead and, and get into it uh, because it is uh, Anatomy of a Fall co-written and directed by French filmmaker Justine Triette. Anatomy of a Fall stars Sandra Huller as Sandra, a German novelist living with her French author slash teacher husband, Samuel, Samuel played by Samuel Thies. I think there's a weird pattern here. Don't know. Uh, and partially blind son, Daniel, played by Milo Machado Grenier. I guess that pattern ended. Oh, well. In Samuel's relatively remote hometown of Grenoble, France, in the Alps in the southeast of the country. The film opens with Sandra being interviewed by a local graduate student only for the interview to be disturbed and ultimately cut short by Samuel playing exceptionally loud music while working on renovations in the attic. Sandra's interviewer leaves while Daniel takes his guide dog Snoop, a best boy border collie, for a snowy walk. And upon his eventual return, Daniel finds his father dead in the driveway from an apparent fall from the attic window his father was working near. An investigation begins, and the autopsy of Samuel's body reveals that his fatal head wound most likely occurred before he impacted the ground, leaving Sandra as the prime suspect. Sandra hires an old school friend, Vincent, played by Swan Arlaw, to represent her, whose plan is to claim Samuel committed suicide if Sandra is eventually arrested and indicted. After after that initial investigation is over, over the preceding days and weeks, Sandra is placed in police custody and awaits trial. And the real anatomy of Samuel's fall begins. Scott, I'll stop there to avoid any spoilers for now. And I'd love to hear from you. If you felt that anatomy of a fall lives up to the festival season hype it has built, or if you found the courtroom drama a bit overstuffed and enigmatic for its own good, leaving you with just as much doubt about the film as some of the characters might have about Sandra. Yeah, so I will say that just for for the listeners, I just got out of the movie about thirty minutes ago. So you know, so you have the coldest takes refined. ready. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, 
No, I, uh, so Scott, obviously, you know, it's a courtroom drama, right? Like you said there. And a French uh, it's one, a no genre. <laughs> it's a genre that let's, it's, I think it's fair to say I have been known to enjoy, uh, in the past. Um, sure. You know, I, I have been on record probably saying my favorite film of all time is A Few Good Men. So another courtroom drama, you know, watching legal dramas, TV shows, movies, all of that when I was growing up, when I was in high school, you know, was something that was very important to me in, you know, de deciding um, that I wanted to be an attorney, that this is the path I wanted to go, you know, down with my career. And uh, so they're very important to me in that way. Um, and even though now that I am an, an attorney, I've been practicing for a few years, um, and I, now when I watch these legal dramas, certain things stand out to me a little bit more, and you know, maybe my frustrations with some of the inaccuracies or whatever, or perhaps, uh, you know, inevitable, uh, when I have, you know, had a few trials of my own now under my belt, um, the genre is something that I still, you know, pretty much enjoy universally and they're not they're not very many of these movies anymore um although strangely enough there have been kind of three different courtroom adjacent movies that have come out here very recently um this being probably the highest profile just because of the palm door but anyway i say all that preamble to say you know um take take my words with a grain of salt because this you know this genre is something that's important to me but i was i found this movie quite riveting um and i i enjoyed it from almost from beginning to end i mean i think we talked last episode about killers of the flower moon a very long movie longer than this movie certainly and you know you know maybe it feels long maybe it doesn't i don't think either one of us thought the running time was a problem in the movie i thought the time flew by in this movie despite being two and a half hours especially once you get to the trial which is probably a little over of half the movie um i thought that the movie just raced by honestly I, I did think it was one of those where you don't feel the length at all um and i, I yeah I, I think you know above all it's just it's it's a gripping experience because the movie keeps you guessing right it's it's holding its cards very close to its chest um and gradually revealing information as the running time goes along and i i appreciate that approach um but um i think sandra hulaire much has been made about her performance i think it's an outstanding performance like so much of the movie hinges on this character and you know again talking about keeping you guessing of course the movie is keeping you guessing as to did she do it did she not right the, the very first thing we see on screen before even the neon logo is this like did she do it.com right which i don't know exactly what that is is that some sort of production you know company involved with this movie is it an actual website whatever but anyway it's planting this idea in your head from the beginning that this is going to be a traditional you know who done it right murder mystery and it doesn't really play out this way um play out that way and i think it's a better film be because it doesn't it's interesting interested in exploring ideas of justice ideas of truth and you know maybe where the legal system can help us reach what truth may be and maybe sometimes where it can't help us exactly um where it fails us perhaps and so i thought it had some fascinating ideas on its mind but at the you know i think the the main draw of the movie in addition to the performance is just that it's um it's very exciting 
to watch. Like it's it's a conventionally entertaining movie. Um, I thought the courtroom scenes were well crafted. We'll talk about some of the you know differences in the courtroom. I'm sure, like the the courtroom scenes, because it's a French courtroom as opposed to an American courtroom. There's a lot of stuff that you know apparently fairly had, accurate for a French courtroom. Sure, which is and crazy. I, by yeah, the way, that is crazy. I, I wonder that, that is accurate. I wondered about that, but I, I will just say I, again, from my perspective as an attorney who's had a few trials and stuff, um, I think. I would be taking a nosedive out of a window if I was having to to have trials in a in a system where sure. my client can basically just have a dialogue with the the judges, the other attorney, the prosecutor, the yeah. witnesses who are on the stand throughout the entire trial. Yeah. I would just be having an aneurysm probably. It's a round table. It's a round table discussion more than it is it a trial. It truly is. Know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that was just one thing that stood out to me. We can talk more about the courtroom scenes, but um, I think, you know, there's there's a little bit of a pacing issue. I mean, as much as the movie does fly by, there was one small pacing issue that kind of annoyed me that we'll talk that I can talk maybe more specifically about that just happens kind of a little bit early on in the movie. I think maybe there's one supporting character that I think is a little bit of a a tool rather than an actual character to kind of, um, you know, get across some information and open up the character of Daniel in particular um, in a way that they probably wouldn't be able to if this character was not in the movie, but the character itself does not really have a whole lot of agency or... or... Are you talking about Marge? Who are you talking about? Yes, I am. I'm talking about Marge. This is... Again, we could we can get into it, but I, I found her character to be again more of just an instrument for the plot almost. Um, but on the whole, the experience you know was a very positive one. I'm just glad to see a big juicy courtroom drama like in theaters again because it feels like it had. I mean, we you know I was trying to think what's the last one barely we, in theaters, but yeah, yeah. Just Mercy is probably the la- only one I can think of that we like talked about on the the podcast probably but even that is like it doesn't have a whole lot of courtrooms i mean is trial of the chicago seven a courtroom drama that's probably the most recent one yeah that's true i I think that's probably fair um but you know this feels like a throwback in a lot of ways to sort of the john grisham pot boilers and stuff like that uh but with a lot more you know with a little bit more at least on its mind and in a way that i appreciated and i i did like the ambiguity and as you say, the enigma of it all. Well, which if you carries... don't like the ambiguity, then I don't think you're going to yeah. like the movie because sure. the movie's not cons- the movie's not really that interested in whether Sandra did it or not. Yes, yeah, and I, and I like that again because so many courtroom dramas are, and um, yeah, so I, you know, and that carries that through all the way to the final shot of the movie. So I really enjoyed it. Um, I think, you know, I wasn't a huge fan of last year's Palm Door winner, Scott, certainly not as much as you, Triangle of Sadness, um, but I think this is a nice sort of rebound, and I, I, I'm i glad that this movie got a lot of hype, at least on the festival circuit, you know, it may not reach mainstream audiences, but um, I think... I mean, I think it will when it goes when it releases on Hulu, which it eventually yeah. will. I think it, and I think people will enjoy it just because it's it's a. Again, you think you think so? Con- I think people won't enjoy it because there's no resolution to the core of the, the core issue that that people you're, turn on the courtroom drama for. You're right. I I think I'm probably having too much faith in humanity. Uh, it's not about faith. It's just like when someone gets when something gets advertised to you as a courtroom drama, you're not expecting an ambiguous ending to what to guilt. Yeah. 
Yes, but again, I, I think that that can be even more satisfying if you know if you understand what the movie is going for. Uh, but you are probably right that there will be uh, a swath of audiences who do not do the same that reason people didn't like Killers of the Flower. Like one of the reasons people didn't yeah. like Killers of the Flower yeah. Moon is that it's not a very satisfying ending. You know, exactly. But um, I enjoyed it, and I hope people will check it out because I think it's it's a lot of fun just on a on a you know base level. And then uh, I think, you know, it's got a little bit to say, too. And, and you know, again, is is a very compelling mystery and with a, with a you know, amazing central performance. Totally. Yeah. I, I, this one is all about the Sandra Haller performance for me. I think that it really pivots around her ability to completely enthrall the viewer. It, honestly, I. I was sort of feeling this before, but couldn't quite put words to it. I was reading David Sims's Letterboxd review, and I and he pointed out that this character was very Tar-like. And although I don't think this movie quite reaches the quality um, of Tar, in my opinion, and, and certainly not, I just I find that comparison of the character actually like kind of perfect because I think that the film revolves around her. It revolves around your ability to be sort of entranced by the mystique and personality of her, of which there is, I think, a certain enigma around her. And I think Sandra Holler is totally able to deliver on that. Do I think the the is it's like as a as forceful of a performance as Kate Blanchett? Not quite, but I do think it's like one of the best performances I've seen this year, and. I do think that the film relies on it massively overall. When I saw it at the film festival, I was really taken aback by some of the courtroom stuff. I found it kind of distracting to me. And I think, and I think that some of that still holds true. Some of the, some of there's a few scenes in particular that I'm just like, even if this is real, it, it does not make for good movie watching for me. Cause I just find it so absurd. It's a cultural difference, right? Like it's just the definition of a cultural difference yeah. in watching a movie. Like, the, the one of the scenes that sticks out in particular in my head is when the prosecuting attorney is reading pages from a novel that yeah. that Sandra has written. And I'm just like, what is happening in this film? Well, Even I think if this is real. That's crazy. The craziest thing to me is that the son, Daniel, right, is not oh, sequestered the for the trial. Yeah. <laughs> and then they bring him back to testify right after he's been sitting there for the entire trial and yeah. having that all of that shape i mean that is that is crazy sure that is crazy sure I, i'm not y yes th that wasn't distracting to, i totally agree but that wasn't yeah. distracting to me because i find what they ultimately do with his character because i think the ultimate goal of the film is to really take daniel's character and have him be the sort of like the thematic driving force yeah. of the last 30 minutes of the movie. And I think it's incredibly effective to do that. And I don't know how much you can do that without that sort of like contamination of the witness, so to speak. And so, whereas I find some of the sort of courtroom antics to be distracting, I found that one to be not distracting and, and actually quite compelling in terms of what it then they then derive from that. I'm just like not sure what the film was able to derive from reading a passage from her book other than just sort of like shenanigans. You know what I mean? It, it does feel like a little bit of a red herring, a little bit where they go down this sort of 
well, what if, you know, it's so desperate. It's like just like mirroring it's so real life. Yeah. yeah. I mean, but maybe that's the idea. Maybe that, I mean, again, I, I, I would say, and this is my defense lawyer's perspective, sure. of course, on things, but I would say that a lot of the prosecution's case in this movie is pretty desperate, right? Because sure. they admit, like the investigator admits, he's like, well, we don't have a witness, right? So we're just interpreting everything. Totally, totally, 100%. It's all so subjective. And, you know, again, I don't know what the burden of proof and everything is like in French court. They don't really acknowledge that in the movie, I don't think. But, um, it, you know. In America, this would be a beyond a reasonable doubt case, and there's so much reasonable doubt that is in the case. The entire totally. case, just, just in the core facts of the case, there's so much. Yeah. reasonable. like the the hypothesis they're putting forth when you actually think about what she would have had to have done on the second floor balcony to get to uh, basically strike him so so forcefully in such a way. And it's not even the her... most plausible explanation for what happened. Like, she, she, totally, hundred percent. Yeah, hundred percent, and. Anyway, maybe we're putting the cart before the horse there and getting into some of the antics of the of the of the courtroom drama of it all. But overall, look, I I, I echo what you said. I was totally enthralled from start to finish, not just by that performance, but by the construction of, of the narrative as well. I found the opening sequence, the fact that even though it's quite a long film, you have the death that you're concerned with pretty quickly, like first 10 minutes of the movie. And even from before that, you can feel the tension and and the anticipation of that bad thing happening palpably in the film. And so I think it does such a good job in my like in my opinion at least grabbing grabbing me right away and certainly holding me through the like you said pretty significant runtime which I barely felt as well. It goes by very quickly. Um Sandra Holler obviously had a pretty big fall season because she's also uh, a supporting role in the Zone of Interest which she's received mm-hmm some buzz for in fact probably more buzz for that role than this one but to me this is this is the superior performance maybe we if we ever talk about zone of interest on the podcast maybe so. we can uh maybe we can com- have a, a moment where we compare the two performances it's very different what she's doing in that one and I, I don't mean this in a derogatory way but i feel like what she's doing in the zone of interest is like very akin to what glenn howerton's doing in blackberry like it's a very specific sort of like He's not evil per se, but she is obviously in the zone of interest because she's playing this, you know, the wife of a Nazi commander at Auschwitz. But it's like very, it doesn't feel super dimensional, her performance in zone of interest. Whereas like here, like all I can see is like the 30,000 different dimensions of this character. Yeah. And the fact that she's able to hold my attention so profoundly throughout the film to the point where kind of like the movie at the end, I'm like, does it matter whether she did it? And the, the film's not saying it doesn't matter whether she did it. That's not what the film is saying. But the film is saying that's just what whether she did it is not the most important thing. And I think that is that like her performance is able to compel me to a place, and the construction of the film is able to compel me to such a place where I'm thinking less about whether she did it at the end of the movie and more about what it all means. And that I think that is the mark of a successful film. I did regarding the pacing. I don't know if it's a pacing point, but I, like I said, I was distracted a little bit by some of the antics in the courtroom. So I think there are yeah. some, some issues there and, and, but, but I just think that ultimately what it's able to derive from it is quite successful. And so it's, it's a very winning movie for me in that, in that respect. My issue was that 
at the first hour or so is kind of setting everything up, right? Um, and it's like the investigation yeah. point, part right? Of we have the investigation. We have you know the the lawyer starting to prepare yep. um, Sandra for what is to come, and then there's you know it it's like it, we're almost just getting into that preparation uh, stage for the trial, and they're talking about how Daniel is going to testify and everything, and how she's going to testify, and she has to be ready for you know any question that they're going to ask her. Basically, she has to be ready to tell the truth about everything. And then it's just like very abruptly, in my opinion, just goes to one year ahead and like the trial has started. There's like it feels like we just jump really quickly and we're right in the middle of the trial there. It, it just feels like there's a little bit missing maybe in between there, a little bit more build up to the trial um, that I felt like, you know, it's, it's a long movie, but it didn't feel that way for me. But I, I felt like it was a little jarring to me at first because I wanted a little bit more suspense to be built going into the trial i guess maybe is what i'm saying yeah i almost feel like if they were to do that though it would almost require them showing their hand on some of the pieces of evidence that they're very specifically holding back to show the audience at the same time as the jury in the trial and i mean those are some of the most compelling scenes in the movie in yeah, my the opinion. argument scene is is incredible. Yeah, I mean it's yeah. It's, I mean that's if she gets again, nominated for Griffin, best actress, yeah. like that's the that's the clip for me. I mean maybe they'll choose something different, but that's the clip mm-hmm. for me. And yeah, absolutely. Like that seems that seems incredible. I even think some of the stuff they do with Daniel at the end of the film, which is like technically, I guess you could show at a different point. Uh, like for me, that is also something that it doesn't work unless it's at the end of the movie. So I do think some of the choices there to withhold that kind of explains why they jump forward to that point. But like, I, I guess I'm curious, Scott, do you think that if it, if the card read six weeks later and the trial had started, would it feel different than, is it just the psychological effect of knowing that a year has passed? Yeah. And, you know, maybe and and maybe it's just the me being poisoned from other courtroom dramas to like, you know, the build up to the trial. And, you know, we have the late night hours prepping witnesses and, you know, we have uh, the, the lawyers doing some real, you know, psychological soul searching and you know we have going into the walking into the courtroom we have the opening statements right we have like you know we're really launching into the the trial um and here it's just like bang we're right in and we don't even it's a little disorienting i guess because again we're, i'm not familiar with this court with this trial system so it's the a little format, disorienting yeah. at first to just even figure out what's going on and then like Pretty quickly, we get into Daniel's testimony, right, which you're expecting is to be the huge centerpiece of the movie. And eventually it does kind of become that, but not. It's the thematic the centerpiece, you think. Of, yeah. the thematic centerpiece um, of the movie, but not. It just took a little yeah. bit to adjust, I guess. But once I did, I mean, again, the trial scenes are pretty undeniable, in my opinion. Yeah, it, if not crazy, they are certainly engaging. <laughs> Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, again, entertaining. Yeah. So I, I think but let's talk about some of the trial scenes. Let's do that. We're already sort of on the topic, and we'll circle yeah. back around to talk about some of the performances a little bit after. But why don't you 
dig a little bit deeper on why you find them you found them so engaging and so effective yeah i mean you know some of the the issues that you may point out if you want to knit you know nitpick maybe it's not even a nitpick but there basically seem to be no objections right in this court like no there's very little objections made despite there being a lot of objectionable things that are being done you know scott yeah. you raised well, a major example of sure. reading the book but well they um, certainly tried to object a lot early on right the, and then the judge is like you need to stop doing that or whatever right. yeah no the judge is basically just like saying we're just gonna let everything happen we're just gonna let let them cook basically we're gonna let yeah. uh the, let let the let the shaved head man cook so yeah and i mean look american courtroom dramas are also a real bastardization of like what what our trials actually look like so in my opinion yeah, maybe it's a little bit you know jarring but like that the, the courtroom scenes are in movies usually so that we can let people cook right like that's sure. that's what they're there for and so why not just go full tilt with it why not have everybody just going back and forth with each other the whole time right because that's what these courtroom scenes are you have all of the jurors up here and you have the prosecutor the defense attorneys there are multiple defense attorneys you have the defendant you have whatever witness is testifying and they're all just engaged in this constant dialogue going back and forth and it's you know it, it's it works because i think you know as as we pointed out so much of the movie sits in that ambiguity of yeah of sandra hilaire's character of sandra and did she do it did she not and it allows like the the psychological ping-ponging in our head to also be reflected on the screen and like the the prosecutor makes a point and it's like oh well kind of that's kind of a point but then here comes the defense attorney right back with the you know with the counter to that and it's like oh well that actually sounds kind of right to me too and it's constantly shifting the way that we're thinking about it too as opposed to you know again a traditional trial that would just have we're going to wait till the end for closing arguments. And they even kind of make fun of it at one point too, because, you know, the, the defense attorney, Vincent, Victor, yeah. Vincent, Vincent. Yeah. He goes off on a long oh, no, spiel. Might, is it Vincent or Victor? No, it's Vincent. It's Vincent. I, it's Vincent. Yeah. It's no, Vincent. I think you're right. Vincent on a long collateral. spiel. The, fa the famous lawyer, Vincent. Yes. Yeah. While, while a witness is up there and the judge, the head juror or judge, it's unclear what she really is, but I think they refer. I think she's a judge. Juror. Okay. Well, anyway, she says at the end, she's like, you know, make no mistake, members of the jury or whatever, this was not his closing argument, right? Um, which I find kind of funny because they're allowing the the attorneys to make closing arguments the entire trial, right? Sure. So I, I don't even know. It's a shame they didn't what, show the real closing arguments. As well, yeah, really. exactly. I don't yeah. even know what she, she's getting all in a, in a tizzy about. But, um, you know, I, I just think it makes it more fun when um we can kind of you know just watch the the performers cook and we can have sort of the the battle that's going on in our head about did she do it or did she not we can have that constantly being played out and as opposed to you know a normal trial bound by the rules of evidence and everything where certain questions just cannot be asked of the witness and certain statements obviously cannot be made uh, unless you're making an argument. Um, everything is fair game here. And the defendant, Sandra, is constantly on trial and having to 
respond to, you know, questions, arguments, rejoinders at, at all, all stages. And it, it's just something different, right? It's not what we have expect come to expect in American courtroom movies. And so I thought it was different. I thought it was entertaining, you know, crazy. Yes. Again, there are a lot of crazy aspects to it. There's so much speculation that's going on. Um, there's so much attorneys just testifying to, you know, the court in the middle of questioning. And then, yeah, this, the sequestration issue with the, with the son killed me, but, um, you just got to let it slide again. I, I let, there's a lot of stuff that we let slide in American courtroom movies too. Um, it's sure. in the interest of having a good time. And, and I had a good time with them. Yeah. I, I almost don't even really want to know whether that's an accurate representation of French court. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I don't, I think it would kind of ruin it one way or the other. It's like, Oh wow. That's crazy that that's real, mm -hmm. uh, man. They really did go for it. And that wasn't how it's normally done. But yeah. my understanding is that it's like kind of that's it's kind of accurate, which that's crazy. certainly says a lot about <laughs> French court. But maybe it works better than U.S. court. I don't know. I have no idea. So hard to say. I mean, I think they reached the right result in this uh, in this instance. But sure. You know, small sample size. Sure. Yeah. So I, I have more thoughts on the courtroom drama as well. But I think I talked about most of the stuff that I want to talk about for now, because I do want to come back, of course, to the final 30 minutes of the film, which is like I've talked about several times already, I felt was the thematic crux of the movie. And though that is a scene in the courtroom, it kind of feels like a discussion we should have as, as a sort of climactic point of the film and, and how we talk about that. So let's let's talk about Sandra Hall. Let's talk about Sandra. Uh, I believe her last name in the film is Voiter, uh, Sandra Voiter. And she is an incredible character. I think one one of the characters of the year for me so far, and, and we already talked about how she's incredibly compelling as a performance, but I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about the elements of the performance that you found so compelling. Yeah, I mean, again, it is the not knowing, right? It's really hard to nail this ambiguity to where we genuinely do not know whether she did it or not. And it, and it's not like a, oh, maybe I'm leaning this way, one way or the other. Like for me, at least, I was just sitting like right in the middle for most of, you know, the running time of this movie. A again, the defense lawyer and me and the, the, you know, person who has studied law in me kind of felt from the beginning, like, oh, she needs to be found not guilty based on the evidence that, or lack thereof, that is being provided here. But the question of did she do it or not is a totally different question. And that's one that I was, you know, pretty firmly in the middle on. And um, just the way that she can change in just one scene, right? Like the argument scene that we're talking about, I think, is a, is a clear um, standout to where, you know, th there's they talk about this argument in the abstract a lot. It, you know, it seems like it's going to be a pretty crucial piece. It gets referenced for the first yeah. hour and a half hour 45 minutes of the movie before it's played crucial piece of the state's case of the the prosecution's case <laughs> the country's um, case yeah sorry uh but um and then we get to the scene and it's like it starts off and and she's responding in a very even keeled like 
you know, very sort of level-headed way. And it's it's her husband who is the one who is being more, you know, demonstrative and loud and, you know, kind 100%. of ang- angry. Yeah. Uh, and then it shifts, right? And by the end of this scene, she's, you know, um, screaming at him, aggressive. basically. And this torrent of violence that we really, we don't know what, what happened exactly. But you can hear, you know, somebody being hit um, in in this audio. Um, and she claims it's him hitting himself. Right. Right. Which, and punching the again, wall. Which, which she has proof that he was punching the wall, but unclear possible. whether. Yeah. yeah. Unclear whether um, he's hitting himself repeatedly. Yeah. But I, I don't know. Just the fact that she never reveals anything with her, her face, really, or how she delivers you know she, yeah she's extremely inscrutable certain lines for yeah, so many like, for so many stretches of the movie even you know the final scene of the movie i get the final shot of the movie i guess my yeah. spoilers at this point but she's lying on the bed with the dog snoop. and snoop and she's just lying there petting the dog and it's the credits she's cuddling, start she's cuddling with the dog yeah asleep with the dog the credits start rolling and it's just like um wow okay well i don't feel like i know the answer to the question any better of whether she did it now than when I, in I, when I did in the beginning. And I don't even know if this was an intentional moment, but Scott, but it was something that I noticed too, that I think kind of plays into the ambiguity. Mm-hmm. Um, but when they are at the, because uh, they go to have a celebratory dinner, her with her lawyers in the Chinese restaurant. And there's, she has something on her plate and she is like struggling to use the chopsticks at first. She's like stabbing into a piece of food with it. And Vincent says something to her like, oh, it's not that easy, is it? Um, and she's like, no. And she says something like kind of, you know, offhand. And then all of a sudden, just like in the blink of an eye, she just like grabs the chopstick, puts it in like perfect form and like picks up the food and eats it. Like all of a sudden it just shifts like that. Like from her not being like very, you know, embarrassingly like using the chopstick incorrectly to like shifted to like, she perfectly uses it and eats the well, food. Okay. And I was like, yeah, I'm not, again, sure. I'm, I think, I don't I think know that if you that was way over read that. That's because what she's trying to do. She's trying Probably. to separate the bones from the chicken. Right. Okay. And so that's what she's trying to do with the chopsticks when she's, I see, right. and then she's just picking it up to eat it. Yeah. That, but that's that how I interpret it. Cause then she, they're talking no, about I think like, right. cause she's saying, Oh, it's so difficult with the bones. And I think that she says that I, I could be wrong, yeah. but no, I, I, I think, it. I think you're right. I think that line of dialogue just didn't necessarily resonate with me, but um, yeah. anyway, I, whether it was, uh, you know, intentional or not, yeah. I think that sums up that idea sort of sums up the character of like, we don't really know who she is. And it, one, one second, it seems like she's fully capable 100%. Because, like, Scott, and, if I ask you this question, yeah. what are the personality traits of Sandra? It's it's really hard to say what we, they are. We have, Yeah, we have, like, again, we have, like, the husband who is telling us in the argument scene a lot of what he says her personality traits are. But then yeah. we have a lot of evidence that that's maybe not what she's like, right? Like, she's... Or she's, he certainly... I mean, he certainly comes off as histrionic in so yeah, many of the... he keeps using the, yeah. the phrase imposing, right? That she's just imposing everything on the family. Yeah. But then she's like, well, we're living in your hometown, right? So, like, you know, totally. a perfectly valid, I think, response to him. Um, and so that's that's the thing, right? 
we only have what other people are saying, right? We only have the interpretation, right? We don't have the truth. Totally. Like, I think you, we know that she loves her son, right? Like, she clearly loves yeah. her son very much. And she's a writer. But, like, it, it's one of those really fascinating roles where the character is extremely compelling. But you're not actually sure who this character is. And I think that's, like, a really tough feat to pull off for a movie. Because I think so many movies are dependent on you being invested in the qualities of the character. But it's hard to say whether... I don't think that I'm invested in the qualities of Sandra. At the same time, I find the performance so captivating. And I find the character so captivating. Obviously, it benefits from being framed in a movie where the point is to not understand who she is. So it obviously benefits in that respect. But I find it such an incredible feat that that she's able to be so alluring while not actually feeding us very much information about her. And so I think it's a big success. And her ability to, as you were describing there, flip a switch and almost be kind of a different person very quickly, uh, going from being inscrutable to very charismatic and warm and uh, welcoming to then flipping the switch back to being cold and inscrutable. I think those things are, they seem really difficult to me. And I found Sandra Holler really extremely capable of flipping that switch on and off in this role. And I think it's one of the reasons why it's so successful. I, yeah, I think this is just one, this might be my favorite performance of the year so far. It's just one of those that is really sticking with me. It's not one of my favorite movies of the year necessarily, although it is a very good movie. But this performance is for me, it, it especially on the second watch. I mean, there's just certain scenes where you're just like, this is unbelievable what she's doing. It really clicks. So I I loved the performance. There are other performances in the movie, and I think one other performance in particular really works for me. There are the supporting cast of Daniel, who's played by Milo Machado Grenier. There is Vince, uh, sorry, Swan Arlaud, who plays the lawyer Vincent. Samuel Thies plays uh, Samuel, uh, Sandra's husband. Is there anyone in the supporting cast, Scott, that particularly stuck out for you? I mean, I think they're all good. I do. Uh, I think that the the actor who plays the young uh, boy plays Daniel is probably also yeah. worth talking about. Yeah, um, for sure. Because, um, you know, he has this great sort of metaphor in his character, right? And that he's literally blind. And also Partially he blind, is. But yeah. Yeah. He is physically blind. Sorry. That's what yeah. that's what I meant to say. Um, but he is also, you know blind in his own way as to what exactly happened he's not sure right he he his his memory is constantly shifting as to well was i actually in this place when you know i heard the the voices or was i actually inside the house you know was i outside was i inside yeah you know this um conversation that i had with my dad was it this one thing or was it this other thing right um sure you know, and it just he he is he is embodying the doubt that I think we all have about what you know actually went on. Um, but he he is in the difficult place now of like again he is blind, partially blind. He like relies on now that his father's out of the picture. You know, he he relies on her. He relies on his mother, right? And 
how is he supposed to go on if, you know, he comes out and incriminates her uh, with his testimony, knowing that, you know, it will probably lead to her being locked up for good. Um, so I think he's having to, you know, bear a lot of weight. And we don't necessarily know that through his performance because he he doesn't say a lot early in the movie. Um, but then I think once we get to those last 30 minutes that you've talked about. And, I mean, he's clearly you know, he, deeply, deeply conflicted. Yes. Yeah. You can see that in his face. But um, finally, when he opens up a little bit more again to the. Um, oh, gosh, I already forgot what her name was. Um, Marge. Marge character. Um, and that emotion comes out. And yeah, it's it's that the helplessness i think that you can really just sense in that character that he does not know what to do because he doesn't know what the truth is and no matter how hard he tries to remember he doesn't know and he can you know somewhat come up for with plausible he he, he can somewhat talk himself into believing either scenario basically it seems that sure. his mother was guilty that she did kill his father or that, you know, it was, well, I think he explicitly said at the end that he can't understand it. If yeah. that were the case and he, that maybe he's that is true, but father would kill himself. There, yes. There is a point where he, I think he's really, again, he's firmly in the middle. And then he has that conversation with Marge and she says to him, like, you know, you can't know, right. We have the doubt. So you just you have, have to, to, you have to decide. decide. Right. And I think when he when he says, I don't understand, that's his, he has made his decision. Right. He has made his decision that, you know, he believes it was a suicide. But again, we're not you know what what all went into that decision. Right. Is this something that he actually firmly believes? Right. With with, you know, as confidently as he can or is his own, you know, personal stake in all of this you know, affecting what he oh, 100%. decides. And I think um, the movie would certainly say yeah. the latter. Like I would absolutely say the latter. Yeah, because, you know, the the reaction shots of him when the verdict is first handed down and his mother is, you know, leaving the courtroom, he's he seems to be overjoyed, right? He seems to be um but then he also doesn't doesn't want he's scared about her coming home. Yeah. Um, well, he wants her to come back, but he's nervous. Like he doesn't want her to come back for dinner. He wants her, like he wants her to come home later that night, but he doesn't want her to come back right away. It's very. I mean, I, 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 I totally agree that this is the performance that I gravitate toward next because the last 30, 40 minutes of the movie are kind of all about his character in a way and how he's processing with it, and he sort of becomes the audience surrogate almost for what's happening and how to feel. Yeah. And I think as that sort of twist and turn started to happen, as the perspective almost shifts where you're really seeing things more from his character's perspective, I was worried that he wasn't going to be capable of holding the screen or the camera as well as uh, Sandra Huller was. And I'm not going to say he holds it to the same extent or the, to, as well as she does. But the fact that I didn't find that really that disturbing to switch that lens means that the performance was really successful for him as well. And I think that he doesn't have a ton to do early on, but he totally delivers in the last 30 minutes of the film. Yeah. And so I, I find it really rewarding. I mean, also, I don't know of a better way to talk about it than right now. 
there are a couple scenes in the last 30 minutes of this movie that are like borderline like i cannot believe you did this in a movie if you're a dog person do, yeah it has to do with the dog i was like viscerally yeah like upset watching this movie for the first time about what's happening what like what he does to snoop and he doesn't experiment hour. yeah he doesn't experiment and i was like i mean there i mean audible groans in the audience both times sure. i saw this movie and it's like very upsetting like it, it, it is a very upsetting thing that happens in this movie. Obviously, since we've spoiled the film, you know that Snoop survives in the end. So the ultimate movie sin doesn't happen, probably. But it very easily could not have though. Like, I mean, look, the first time I was it watching was looking the movie, pretty like, dicey there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the first time when I saw the movie for the first time, I was like, this, this is not good. This is not how's good he going to come back from this? Yeah, yeah. And you know, luckily, steers clear. The, the film steers clear of that of that hurdle because I think that'd have been a tough one to get over if Daniel were to have killed the dog. That would be pretty brutal. But a very harrowing couple minutes on screen there that I did not like very much. I'll say that. I'll say that frankly. I did not enjoy that. And I think a lot of people are, are going to respond pretty negatively oh, yeah, <laughs> to that scene. Sure. Uh, Scott, obviously, you didn't care and were actually hoping that the dog would die as a no. No, that, no. that's, kidding, that's an exaggeration. It definitely didn't disturb me on the level that it did. You... Sure. And I mean, I like it as a plot development. Once once it's revealed. Oh, you exactly. like the kid cooking? You like the kid trying some some once criminal experiments over here? Once it's revealed what he was actually doing, I'm like, oh man, I'm like this is. You ever heard of Google, my guy? You could Google what the dog's reaction is going to be if it takes aspirin. You don't but have no, to do it's the not experiment. Just, it's he had to see it. He, well, not see it, but he had to experience <laughs> it for himself. He had to smell the smell. Right? He talks about the smell sure. being the same. Sure. Um, he had to know as much as he can know. Yeah, and I think now is also a good time because I I didn't bring it up when we were talking about Sandra as a character, but it, it is there's this is a lot to do with Sandra. So I guess I do want to add it back in and say. I think one of the things that also makes her really compelling um, and the film so compelling about her is that even though you don't know a ton of maybe you can't really narrow down exactly what her characteristics or qualities are, but it doesn't shy away from portraying her as like an incredibly human person. Yeah. And incredibly like and frankly, sometimes not a very nice person. And it doesn't shy away from that. And it, it really embraces that and says and I think poses the the question is like. Does the fact that she had these really, you know, frankly, ugly arguments and a bad relationship with her husband, does that mean, does that alone mean that she's going to have killed him or that she's a bad person? And I think it's making, it's like asking you those tough questions. And I think at the extreme end, it's easy to say, well, no, that doesn't mean that she killed him. But on the other, on the other end, it's like, there's a world in which you can say pretty quickly that like, yeah, she kind of seems like a bad person. Like, I don't know if I fully agree with everything that this guy is saying, but like she doesn't seem like the best partner in the world. I'm Mm -hmm. not sure. And I think that the film just sort of leaves it up to you to how to parse some of those things. And I think it's asking you questions about that are like fundamentally like sexist and things like that. Like how, how much expectation do we have to put on a woman or gendered roles in a relationship and how much of that is acceptable. And I think that the, all those like messy questions really work for the movie. And may and sort of lend to that sort of mystique that I was talking about, the mystery around the character. This is something that just kind of occurred to me, but I believe uh, maybe I'm way off on this, but the well, the judge is a woman, and then I think like all the jurors seem to be female from what I 
recall. I'm not going to pretend to understand like which ones yeah. were the actual juries and which ones were like all that's, the judge or that's like part right. of the trial. All the people who are sitting up there around the judge, who you would assume to be the jury. There was a guy. There was a guy up there, but okay. he had the robes on that like made him like he could be an officer of the court. So I yeah. wasn't 100 percent sure. Um. Anyway, but you're totally right that those things exist in all of this. You know, uh, the the struggle that we're talking about to to uh, you know determine whether or not totally she did it, like and, the gender roles and all of that. And to tie it back to what we're talking about, Daniel here, I think one of the fascinating things about Daniel is that even in these other circumstances where Sandra's not even really on screen, like she's barely peripheral to like what's happening. And that's mainly, I think, in, in the scenes that we're talking about here with Snoop and what's going on here. The truth is, is that we still don't even know whether it was a suicide attempt at all. Like, even if all those things were true and the aspirin stuff was true, the point is, is that she could have tried to poison him six months ago. And they, and they briefly bring that point up in the trial. But it's something that I think, to me, it's like, okay, yeah, obviously this is hypothesis, whatever, whatever, whatever. doesn't really hold up in a court of law. I get that. But like, again, if you're just thinking about the morality of it and, and sort of the did she do it or did she not do it? It's like the fact that this that Daniel has gone through this experiment and confirmed that the actual things happened doesn't even mean she didn't poison him to begin with, yeah. which I sort of love the fact that the ambiguity and maybe it's not realistic or maybe it's super realistic. And that's the point. But like there's ambiguity in everything in yeah. everything. That layers happened. upon layers. There's no way you could say with any real confidence uh, the sort of purpose or the intent behind a lot of these things that happen of course like we have evidence like physical evidence that confirms certain factual things but like the motive or what's behind those things is never confirmed in any respect and you have to evaluate that for yourself and daniel has to evaluate all of that for himself and to your point about uh, that sort of conversation that daniel and marge have i think it's such a it's such an important question for Marge to ask him and for him to act eventually have to answer in the final trial scenes in the film. And I think that all really worked. And, and that is where I think Milo, uh, Marchado Grenier really, uh, Machado Grenier really, really shines because he's able to deliver that sort of uncertainty and that, uh, almost this discomfort that he's feeling and having to make these decisions. And then, his lack of confidence in the decision that he's made just feels like so real, right? Like, how do you, like, I have to answer this because it's the only way I can move forward and I'm choosing this. And I think that I just found that to be quite compelling. Like obviously yeah. the guilt does her guilt does matter, but what matters most is whether she's guilty or not. I have to decide whether I think she's guilty and I'm deciding whether, and I'm deciding that I don't think she's guilty, but it could have easily just gone the other way too. Yeah, I, I just find that that stuff is effective. It really works well. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's one of the the closest you know movies or whatever that that have that has come to really putting you in the shoes of a juror, right? Yeah, and, and what that decision making process is like. Because in so many other courtroom dramas, there's a clearly set up good versus evil, or you're supposed to you know sure. root for this particular side, or you know we know from the beginning who did it. Um, so, you know, I thought that that was, and again, something else that lended something unique to a, a genre where maybe you, we would have said, well, we've kind of seen everything that it has to offer. Yeah, totally.
So you wanted to talk a little bit more about Marge. I just wanted to bring it back up. I know we started to talk about her a little bit, but you found this character yeah. less than compelling. Did you want to share more about that or did you want to just move on? I mean, I, I don't have too much to add except what I um, said earlier. Just I think that the movie kind of uses her as a tool to move the plot and move the character of Daniel forward. She's, you know, her, her role is that she has been Almost appointed. Like a supervisor. Yeah, by the the judge by the court to um Monitor. live to to stay in the house with sandra and daniel and make sure that she's not improperly influencing him anyway in any way since he's going to be a witness yeah um but instead she just becomes this kind of vessel primarily again she she barely registers as a character until that pat last 30 minutes and even then it's just kind of you know she's there to give somebody Daniel to interact to so he can express all of these thoughts that we know he's been having, but that he hasn't really, um, you know, been able to express say anything to anyone. About. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and I, we don't really know anything about her character. Like we know her name and what she's there to do. Um, otherwise, I mean, and she, you know, she offers some, important ideas right again she's the one who who cements that idea of you have to decide right which is critical to what the the movie is saying but i don't know i just couldn't couldn't quite shake the feeling that that character just felt like a very convenient sort of device almost um would you to... have preferred him to have like a court appointed therapist or psychiatrist that he would then talk to i'm just like, like I, I guess i'm trying to conceive a way i mean obviously yeah maybe there's no good answer and because they want to do what they want to do well, with daniel in the last half hour maybe it's just impossible to make that feel natural but i'm curious I, what like the solution would be but but i think that would make more sense because it's almost a therapist's job right to be that sort of empty vessel right to just encourage the person to you yeah. know get everything out there whereas this march character is supposed to be this like i get again her role is somewhat unclear other than we know she's a supervisor but she she's obviously meant to be some sort of neutral arbiter, but now she's sort of pushing him in a. I mean, she's not. Really Her role pushing is to protect in. Daniel's testimony, yeah. right? Like ultimately, like protect Daniel and protect Daniel's testimony, but, but not she is provide. Kind of encouraging him, she is influencing him in a way. Maybe but not, not, but one not, way but not one way or the other. She's influencing yeah. him to make a decision. Yeah, but. I don't know. It just seemed like a a, a little bit of a again shoehorned in weird. Mm -hmm character um which really only served one purpose yeah that's fair not not but, it wasn't, but, it wasn't I mean, but every minor character can't be developed either so it didn't bother me as much but i do hear what you're saying and it, and yeah i don't know um it, it didn't like i said it didn't really bother me but it's not like i'm pointing to you know jenny beth who plays marge and being like this is it this is the this is the performance <laughs> yeah <laughs> but sure. i i did find her neutrality to be sort of like kind of like yeah, yes maybe a court appointed psychiatrist might have been better but at the same time she's there and like this is eating him up inside and he's gonna talk to someone you know so he's gonna talk to the only person who's there so him talking to her makes a lot of sense but maybe her being there makes a little bit less sense i don't know last thing i want to talk about before we do wrap things up scott is just talk about this film's oscars chances obviously it had a lot of festival hype over you know, since Cannes, obviously since it went in the Palm Door back in May. Do you think this film has the heft to carry through award season? Like, does Sandra Huller have a shot at Best Actress? 
Obviously, this film was not selected as France's pick for the best international feature category. That is the Taste of Things, the Tron and Hung film. So it will not be competing in that category, although it is, of course, eligible in other categories. Uh, do you think that it has a chance in any of those? Or do you think because France has maybe uh, gone a different direction, which a film, by the way, which I actually find, I actually do think is better than this movie uh, yeah. per- on a personal level. Um, that said, the Huller performance for me just feels so, so momentous that it feels like I, I really want it to be recognized. But do you think it has a chance? Um, I can see both sides. But, um, you know, again, movies recent palm door winners have done quite well right in the case of triangle of sadness and parasite you know those films were selected for best feature. well that was yeah that was going to be my next point is that those films were not and you know in a perfect world yes the oscar voters would watch all of these movies right but we just know that that's not the reality unfortunately and can i see them watching a foreign language film that was not selected for the foreign language category. Even if it has buzz like this, even if it's a Palm d'Or winner, I don't know. I, I, I just I just don't know. Um, if, you know, they surprise me and watch the movie, though, I mean, I think yes. I, I think it absolutely has a chance, right? If, if Parasite, if Triangle of Sadness can get nominations in major categories, albeit no acting nominations, right? Neither one of those movies received acting nominations. But also, neither one of those performances maybe has the sort of show... uh, Neither one of those movies has the sort of showpiece performance that this movie has in Sandra Hilaire. So I think, you know, if the movie is going to be recognized, I don't know if it quite gets there in, like, Best Picture, but I think a Best Actress is on the table. Um, and I don't, I certainly don't think it's out of the running for best picture because despite the sort of unsatisfying ending that you're talking about, I think in a lot of ways, it still is like, it's a courtroom drama, right? It's an old school type of movie. Right. Sure. And, and I was going to say see... actually of any international feature that isn't getting watched by okay, the Palm door winner probably is one of the ones that actually probably could still get eyes on it. Also, just a quick correction for us, because Triangle of Sadness was not selected last year for Best International Feature because it I don't like I don't know what country would have submitted it now that I'm thinking about it, because France selected St. Omer. I don't even think it's technically a French movie, so I'm actually not sure. What about Sweden? I mean, that's where Ruben Oslund is from. Yeah, but it's definitely not a Swedish. It's not a Swedish movie. It's definitely not a Swedish movie. Um, Yeah. So I just want to correct because I know we just said that it was nominated for Best International Feature. That is not true. It is definitely not true that that. I think it technically would have been a French movie because it was a French and British co-production, I believe. Uh, well, actually, it's okay. a co-pro between Sweden, Germany, France, and the UK. None of them selected it, I don't. I think, sure. in terms yeah. of international features. So it didn't actually... So, so maybe that's a good sign for Anatomy of a Fall. Then. Yeah, like, and, it maybe, did, you know, and it did get it nominated for three, for three awards, including Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Original Screenplay. Scott. Did you know that Ruben Austin was nominated for Best Director last year? Unfortunately, I did. Yeah, I'd forgotten that. Uh, yeah. Look, great film, in my opinion. I think that all the people who are hating on it, I don't, I don't part really of the fully, problem. I don't really <laughs> fully understand. Um, yeah. Fair I enough. think that I think that all of you are focusing too much on the second act of the movie and not enough about the first and the third. But that's just me. I love how this has become a referendum on Triangle of Sadness. Uh, but you know, I I do hope that. 
at the very least, Sandra Huller can get nominated for Best Actress. I think it's a... I don't actually know how strong of a year it is. I would defer to you on that. Because I don't know... Because there's Lily Gladstone. So there's obviously there's a bunch of really strong and like I guess Carrie yeah. is Carrie Mulligan in the best actress category for Maestro. So there there's some big names in the category. So it might be tough, but it just feels like one of those performances that's really powerful. Yeah, I haven't done too deep of a dive yet. We are going to talk about the Gotham Awards in part two, but I haven't done too deep of a dive yet into award season stuff and what's there right now. And honestly, what's there right now may not even be that good of a barometer based on the past because we still have a long yeah. way to go. I mean, Lily Gladstone, Emma, Emma Stone. Annette Benning in Nyad, maybe? Oh, I don't think know. that's I don't think that's serious. Okay. I mean, maybe I'm wrong about that. I don't think that's too serious. Carrie Mulligan, Margot Robbie. So it it's a, so it is a, it sounds like it's a competitive year. Yes, there's Annette Benning. There's may, maybe it doesn't really feel like I don't know, because she's won an Oscar before, right? Annette Benning? Yeah. No, she's no, one she of the like Okay, well, one maybe. of those Glenn Close types that has yeah. been nominated several times but never won. Perfect. But there's Natalie Portman in May December. I think it, it so having said that now I think that it's a pretty it's a pretty competitive year. But I don't know for me I think Sandra Hollart is in that conversation for a nomination in my book and hopefully hopefully she will be. Whether this film has the has the juice to get a best original screenplay nomination actually low-key that category is like a little bit light this year usually it's original screenplay where all the competition is but i feel like adapted screenplay is where things go crazy this year um because you have you have oppenheimer you have i guess barbie is technically an original screenplay which blows my mind when i hear that but um technically it's you know if we know something from adapted screenplay in the past is that they will pick the most mediocre choice no matter how strong the field is so just be prepared for that but then but i think the original screenplays are like may december holdovers barbie so it's like it's like kind of weaker than your adapted screenplay category which is like killers of the flower moon oppenheimer like just like the heaviest of heavy hitters you think i don't know that, that that's my book so maybe there is a chance anyway we're gonna have plenty of time to talk about oscars stuff in the future so we can maybe cut the conversation off about anatomy of a false chance there i do agree that i think this year is like probably just like too good for it to get a best picture nomination but maybe there's other categories which it can it can find some success where maybe it belongs more anyway scott wrap-up phase what's your favorite scene or moment from anatomy of the fall yeah i think it's the argument scene absolutely i think it it is is the showstopper uh because again you hear so much about this and you're kind of just waiting with bated breath to see because you know you're gonna what's gonna happen right and you know it doesn't start off the way you're expecting and again, it, it is that like we, we're expecting, oh, the argument, this is going to reveal the answers, right? This is going to let us know. It's going to be damning. Yeah. Yeah. And we're just as, as you know, uh, skeptical. Especially because they don't show you what happens at the end of the recording. Yeah. 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 Because, because we don't know. Uh, all, all, you know, again, they're putting us in the shoes of the people in the courtroom for the most part. Um, yeah. And all we hear is is violence that can be explained in multiple different ways. Yeah, I, I think that's my favorite scene as well. But just to be different, I will talk about the final Daniel's final scene in the movie uh, or final courtroom scene, I should say, in the film. And I really like the editing that happens in this scene in particular. That's what stands out for me, where unlike with the recording, they actually move to the whole scene and all the audio is happening 
in the scene, but Daniel, rather than completely going to the scene where he and his father are talking in the car when he's having this conversation about how one day, you know, the dog might die and it's his time to go, et cetera, et cetera. And you just hear it all. And it's edited just to hear where you hear Daniel's voice in Samuel's uh, words, even though you're seeing Samuel on screen say these things. And I loved the editing there and found the whole thing very, I don't know, just sort of perfectly toned of a scene to sort of conclude the trial on and, and really hammer the thematic points that I think we've been talking about quite a bit here around. He's making, he's speculating a lot and he's making his decision and, and the film is showing his decision in this way. And I found it very moving. I thought it was very effective. Absolutely. All right, Scott, out of 10, what are you giving anatomy of a fall? 8.6, really good, really solid film. Um, everyone check it out and uh yeah make more courtroom dramas it's a good genre yeah we're 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 pretty close to each other here i'm giving it an eight eight two uh and i really enjoyed this movie it's one of those where like i mentioned at the beginning i wasn't sure whether i was going to revisit it before this conversation but not that i unlocked a lot more about the movie but i just felt so much more confident in how i felt about the movie having rewatched it and it was very it was a very valuable rewatch for me and you know a month had passed and so i'd had some space to digest and forget a little bit and then come back to it. So it worked really well. All right. That should do it for our discussion of anatomy of a fall. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we'll be talking about award season. Scott's going to be talking about the Gotham awards. And then also the news this past week that the WGA awards is being pushed back later than normal, creating an interesting dynamic for at least the screenplay races this year. So we'll talk about that when we come back. Stay tuned. Welcome back for part two of today's episode of Some Like It's Got. As mentioned before the break, in the past few weeks, we haven't had the chance to talk about it yet, although it had happened a few weeks ago. Now, Scott, tell us about the Gotham Award nominees, the sort of inaugural start of award season, I feel like, even though it's, it was October at the time, happens when the Gotham Award nominees get announced. They're always the first awards uh, to be, nom- like the first nominations to be announced. So what are the early indicators for Checks Notes? Uh, Barbie's indie success? Yeah. Um, so as you mentioned, Scott, the Gotham Awards are, when awards season is all said and done, they're not something that anyone will really ever remember or, you know, look look back on and say, oh, this, you know, predicts the Oscars or anything like that. They're not, they're not significant except in the sense that you have mentioned, right, which is they are always the kickoff of award season when the Gotham Award nominations get announced. And they're much more you know, comfortable are... to the Indie Spirit Awards. Like you're not going to exactly. be getting like Oppenheimer is not going to be getting nominations at this show. And frankly, you wouldn't think Barbie would either, but I know that it did. So they changed the rules. So Barbie was, I guess, uh, qualified. Right. Um, but yeah, it is generally for more independently minded movies. So, um, you know, not again the best barometer for the big award shows to come but you know just something interesting and fun to look at um see what is getting recognized and see you know if there are any any narratives that continue as as you know the 
other nominations in critic circles start to trickle out and then you know the the big awards the guild awards um the ones that actually happened this year at least um the golden globes as significant or insignificant as they may be they're still gonna be uh released and then obviously the oscars um as the culmination of all that but um and Scott, also as we talk, start to talk about the gotham awards one the thing i was referencing earlier is that previously not only is it they're like typically awarding independently minded films there was in previous years a budget cap where your film could not have costed yeah. more than i think it was like 30 or 35 million dollars to make and they removed that this year for god knows why well actually we know why it was barbie so having said that i will let you jump into the nominees fine exception to make in my opinion but um well, in terms of uh yeah starting kind of defeats top, the Scott. purpose it kind of defeats the purpose yeah. of an independent movie award if you're nominating the highest grossing film of the year. And to be fair, you know, I guess they really, they only nominated one performance, right? They nominated Ryan Gosling. Um, and I don't believe it was nominated anywhere else from my memory. So um, they made the exception for Ken and I don't think I can blame them, but um, best feature Scott starting at the top passages, the French language, Iris Sachs directed, um, gay romance movie starring Franz Rogowski and Ben Whishaw. Um, I haven't seen that one yet, but it is out. I believe it is on VOD, maybe even streaming on somewhere. You're forgetting Adele X. Archopolis as well. Yeah, of course. Um, maybe streaming on movie or somewhere like that at one point, but that sounds that's right. I think it's a movie that's nominated. Uh, Past Lives, of course, Celine Song's film that we talked about on the podcast, Scott. Um, that that seems to be sort of the indie darling of this year, right? That's the one. If I had to bet on one of these films to get a best picture nomination, I think it's it's easily past lives of the of the films that I'm gonna read here. Um and I, I do think, you know, that film probably has despite being an independent film, has a chance to get quite a, a few nominations. I think A twenty four which you think it's more likely than Anatomy of a Fall? Yes. I think A24 obviously has a very good track record now, and this feels like probably the movie that they're going to be pushing the most because it is arguably still the most celebrated movie of the year from a critical perspective. Um, but very good movie. Reality, Scott, this is uh, the Tina Satter-directed film for yeah. HBO um, that was on Max starring Sidney Sweeney as um, the, the what's her name? The, Reality uh, winner. Reality winner, yes. Yeah. Uh, sort of docudrama um, of her whole story. It's just set over a single day. Did you see this one, Scott? I have not seen it, but I do okay. plan on seeing it. It's only an hour yeah. and 20 minutes. It's very short. It's a quick watch. I watched it. I enjoyed it. Um, I thought Sidney Sweeney was really good in the movie. So is Josh Hamilton, who plays the FBI agent that's questioning her for a lot of the movie. Um, it's an interesting story. I'm kind of surprised to see it showing up here is not a film that um i necessarily thought a whole lot about after watching but it is solid so um you know good for good for reality uh, speaking of showing up scott showing up uh is nominated for best feature as well um uh, that is uh kelly reichardt's um latest film one of my absolute favorite movies from the year i've seen it twice now um, and, you know, obviously Kelly Reichert, one of the more significant figures in independent American independent movies, 
for the last 20, 25 years. So um, anytime she makes a film, I think it's always going to be nowadays, it's always going to be circling around here. And I'm delighted to see that it got in. And then the final nominee is a thousand and one. Scott, this was a film that I kind of forgot about. It was a Sundance premiere. I actually yeah. won the grand jury prize at Sundance this year. Um, but, um, you know, not, a, not a film that really stayed in my mind, but this is directed by A.V. Rockwell starring Tiana Taylor, who is, I think more known as, as a musician, um, but has acted in like some Tyler Perry stuff. Um, but this movie had a, a U.S. release all the way back in March of 2023. Um, yeah, it came out in New know. York. I don't know how wide the release was. I remember seeing it in theaters shortly after Sundance. I didn't watch it, but I saw that it was in theaters. Yeah, no, it, it, this one just kind of seemed to come and go again. When I saw it was nominated, um, I was like, oh, right, that was a movie. It, it's on Amazon Prime Video now. Um, you can you can watch it there, and maybe I'll give it a, a chance now that it's been nominated. Um Looking a little further down, uh, Best International Feature, All of Us Strangers, Scott, Andrew Hayes movie. That's one that you talked about um, from the uh, the New York Film Festival. Anatomy of a Fall is nominated here. Poor Things, Yorgos Lanthimos, um, his latest film is nominated in the Best, Origin uh, Best International Feature category here. Another film um, that probably normally would not be eligible for this yes. awards show, because I can't imagine that budget was under $30 million. Yeah. Having seen the movie, it would be pretty crazy if they made that movie for less than $30 million. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Searchlight, I don't think, probably makes a lot of movies down there. But, um, well, no, that, that's not true. I mean, Searchlight's, they're like, they're like indie brand, but I just think that. Yeah. But even when you even see, when, if you see Poor Things, Scott, you'll understand that it's very hard to believe this film was made for less than $30 million. Okay. All right. Yeah. A lot of effects, I'm sure. Um, but uh, Totem is the next nominee, Scott. Uh, I believe this is. A Spanish language movie joint production it looks like between Mexico, Denmark, and France. But no, don't really know too much about this movie. Directed by Lila L Lila Avilas, um, starring a cast of you know mainly unknowns. But starring a cast. Interesting, interesting to see it get nominated. And then the Zone of Interest, which we also talked about a little bit. Jonathan Glazer's movie, another A twenty four film. Um, and of course Sandra Hulaire starring in that one as well. Another movie that's been talked about a lot. From the festival circuit <coughs> scott best screenplay um again not too much new to note here all of a stranger's anatomy of a fall um and the zone of interest all getting nominated as well as may december um which we also mentioned kind of crazy uh, that's Todd only that was that was like the biggest nominee because it did get nominated in supporting actor but not any of the people that you would have Right. Imagine. Yeah, Charles Melton got nominated, but yeah. Julianne Moore and Natalie Portman were passed over. Um, but May, December, Todd Haynes' film. Looking forward to that one. A Netflix film. Um, then Outstanding Lead Performance. There, of course. Sorry, also, doing... there's the film RMN that was also nominated for Best Screenplay. Yeah, I was just kind of brushing over that because I don't know that movie. But, um, sure. But yes, um, outstanding lead performance. They're doing the thing where it's not split up by gen gender. So yep. we have all genders represented here in this one category. Um, the performances um, here, perhaps the ones to note, Scott. I mean, we could go through all of them, I guess. But Anjanu Ellis um, is nominated for Origin. Um, not a movie that I've seen yet, but it's a, that's a neon film. Um, that I believe came out fairly recently. It's Ava DuVernay's um, film. Right. Yes. Okay. Right. Yeah. Um, 
she is nominated. Lily Gladstone is nominated for The Unknown Country, right? Which is one of, I think, three films that she made this year. Um, not her most notable, of course, that being Killers of the Flower Moon, but she is nominated. Greta Lee for Past Lives, Franz Rogowski for Passages. Babatita Sajo for Our Father the Devil. Um, again, not a movie that I'm super familiar with, but it's a French language film that is nominated there for its lead. Andrew Scott for All of Us Strangers. Kaylee Spaney for Priscilla, which was just released this weekend, another A24 film. Um, I am hoping to catch up with that one. Scott, I know you were able to see it and seemed like you enjoyed it quite a bit. Better than, better than Elvis, I'll tell you that much. Yeah, high bar to clear, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> Tiana Taylor, who I mentioned in 1001, Michelle Williams in Showing Up, and then Jeffrey Wright in American Fiction, not one that is out um, wide yet, but one which I think seems like it's going to be talked about in award season, it does seem like. It seems that like it's one of, of the front runners right now in awards yeah. season, just in general. And Amazon, and Amazon MGM. And it won the... It won the audience award at TIFF. That's why it's such a big deal. Right. Okay. Right. Yeah. Supporting performance, Scott, Juliette Binoche in The Taste of Things, the Tran on the Hung movie that you mentioned, Penelope Cruz in Ferrari. Again, the only place that Ferrari showed up, I believe. Um, interestingly uh, Again, enough. not a film that cost less than $30 million to make. Yeah. I assure you, it did not cost less than $30 million to make. Yeah, that would be <laughs> hilarious. But um, Jamie Foxx in They Cloned Tyrone, which was, uh, you know, kind of a random Netflix movie that was just, you know, came but out. Very critically, pra like a very highly was, praised yeah. film. Yeah. It was, but again, you know, the Netflixification of of movies, it just like you heard about it for it one or two it. weeks, right? Especially because yeah. it's and a then, summer drop, right? I think it was like a like a mid-July drop sure. on Netflix, which is yeah. just like usually I feel like some of the pits on Netflix, sure. you know. Just, um, just throw a, a movie into and never hear from it again. But it has but, like almost, it has like a ninety-five percent on Rotten Tomato. Not yeah. that Rotten Tomato is the banner that I fly, but it's very well received. Jamie Foxx. I've always been a fan of his. I think he's a great actor. And he also has The Burial, which is out right now. And that's one of the other. Um, and that movie is dramas. bad, apparently, which is ironic. So, yeah. But that's one of the other courtroom dramas that I was referring to that was released recently. Yeah. And I've, I, I, ha I have still heard that he is good in it, even though oh, I'm sure he's not that great. He's got um, the juice, man. Also nominated Claire Foy in All of Us Strangers. Um, Ryan Gosling in Barbie, who we mentioned. Uh, getting in there. Glenn Howerton in Blackberry, um, one we talked about. Um, maybe you don't quite understand that one, but he is nominated. Sandra Hilaire getting nominated for The Zone of Interest, of course, her supporting performance. Um, I was delighted to see Rachel McAdams in Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret, mm -hmm. um, one of my favorite performances of the year, certainly. Charles Melton, as I mentioned, in May, December, and then Divine Joy Randolph in The Holdovers, uh, Alexander Payne's movie, another one that just came out that I'm hoping to catch up with soon, Scott. Um, totally. And I think those are pretty much the things to talk about. You know, there's TV awards too, but I don't think we need to spend any time on those. I don't know if you have any major takeaways from this. I don't know that there really is major takeaways to have from the Gotham Awards because, again, it's not really a prognosticator of what's to come. Honestly, I don't have too many thoughts. I ha the only the only immediate reaction that I had that's related to the podcast today is that Sandra Holler was nominated for the Zone of Interest, but not for Anatomy of a Fall. Anatomy of a Fall, which clearly was eligible because it was Anatomy of a Fall was nominated sure. in other categories. So, yeah, I mean, I haven't seen Zone of Interest, but I mean, I mean, she's great, and don't get me wrong. Like, I think yeah, very well could be nominated in both in my book, but 
she's she's superb and she's and superb in that anatomy anatomy as we talk no rewind no. an hour you can hear our conversation about her <laughs> yeah very true Over all right you, Scott. yeah so that was the gotham awards i think it, this this is a nice sort of two-parter because this this conversation is very much related to the one we just had and that is the announcement that the wga awards in light in light of the ongoing strikes but specifically i'd imagine the significant strike that the wga itself had over the past six months or so they are announced that they are pushing back the schedule for their award show so originally as we as we are accustomed to the wga awards happen a few weeks ahead of the academy awards which this year i believe is in mid mid march mid to early march and instead they have placed their ceremony in april almost a month after the Academy Awards this year, or I should say next year. So kind of a big shakeup. The WGA Awards are always a weird one because you have to be a member of the Guild in order to be nominated, which there it doesn't always matter, but that does leave certain little people like Quentin Tarantino, who's not a member of the WGA. He can never be nominated for the WGA Awards, and obviously he's always in the conversation for best screenplay when he when he releases a movie at the oscars isn't martin scorsese not in it as well or i'd have to deal i'm not 100 sure but so there's there's some quirks always with wga awards and it's not the best predictor because like for that reason but it still is a very notable award that definitely informs the conversation leading into the oscars and, and where momentum is, is certainly heading going into the oscars and and you can prognosticate the screenplay awards from that certainly but we will not have that available to us for prognostication this year, Scott. So I'm curious what your reaction is to that, because not that it shakes up the race, but having one fewer data point before the Oscars happens, I kind of feel like that's a, that's an exciting prospect because I'm so tired, frankly, of kind of knowing, I don't know, of the 24 categories. That's a, I'm making a round number. It might be less than that. The 20 or so categories the fact that sort of like 15 of them are often wrapped up by the time we go into Oscar night. And the fact that two of our bigger categories are two screenplay categories might be more up in the air is kind of exciting to me. And I wonder if you feel the same way. Yes and no, Scott, what you're saying is certainly true, right? That there is a lack of suspense nowadays because these things get predicted to death and usually pretty correctly by the time we get there. If you follow this stuff as closely as we do. Sure. Um, so that is exciting because, as you've mentioned, the guilds track really closely with the Oscars. Um, yeah. But uh, the not exciting part, right, is that this is the writing categories, right? And look, I love a good screenplay, but the Oscars don't tend to award a good screenplay, at least in recent years, when it comes to these categories. So, um, you know, it's it's almost it's almost been nice in recent years to already have my hopes crushed going into the Oscars, <laughs> right? That Women Talking, for example, is going to win Best Adapted Screenplay instead of, let's say, Top Gun Maverick, or that Coda is going to win instead of uh, a few other okay films like Drive My Car, Dune, The Lost Daughter, and The Power of the Dog. Um, Why did you bring yeah. it back up, Scott? That's my I know. I I'm sorry. I I'm, I'm not over it. I'm not over it. Um, and, you know, of course, even worse than that, uh, Jojo Rabbit beating out the Irishman and Little Women in 2019. Um, so bad, bad categories generally in recent years. I am hopeful. You know, you're mentioning that adapted screenplay does appear to be stronger this year. 
Um, best original screenplay hasn't necessarily been great either in terms of the results, but um, we'll see. Uh, I, I mean, there, there's not too much else to add, except it does add suspense um, into it. But I just wonder when the when the moment comes, are we going to be like, oh, that was a nice surprise? Or are we going to be like, oh, boy, they did it again. The Oscars Oscared again. Well, look, you can always trust the Oscars to Oscar, probably. Um, but yeah, maybe if you're not, right. Maybe, if not in maybe, these categories, somewhere else. Maybe they we're will. foolish to think that uncertainty is an advantage. And in fact, it is more yeah. soul-crushing the night of to uh, be surprised when they pick the worst film in the category. In or, hindsight, or would I like to know, would I have liked to know that the Cleveland Indians were going to lose game seven of the 2000 and uh, certainly in hindsight, you'd love, you'd World Series? Yeah, I would have absolutely loved to know yeah. that. Fair enough. All Same right. Same principle. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And uh, with, with that really cheery note, we can end episode 253 of Some Like It Scott. Where can people find you on social media? I'm at Scarvey Dent on all platforms. And you can find me at, at Shelton2013 on those platforms as well, like Twitter, Letterboxd, Serialized. Don't forget to also check out our podcast, Patreon, at www.patreon.com slash mediaplugpods. If you support us over there, we'd appreciate that. If not, it's okay. You can still find us on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, and wherever else you listen to your podcast, where we'd love it if you rated and reviewed, subscribed, shared, all that jazz, so we continue to reach a broader audience. And finally, we really appreciate all of you for taking time to listen to us chat about Anatomy of a Fall. We'll be back next week with a discussion of David Fincher's new film, The Killer. So we hope you'll join us for that. But until then, for Scott Harvey, I'm Scott Shelton. We'll see you next time.